You're listening to Rambling with Ryu, hosted by Bean, the co-founder of Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center living with a T10 spinal cord injury, and Nancy, a professional kinesiologist specializing in pediatric and adult neurorehabilitation. Welcome to our activity-based therapy series, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and those with lived experience as we explore the realm of neurorecovery. On this podcast, we educate on the lesser-known topics and give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice. This is Episode 2 of our nutrition series with Brittany Nunzig, who is a certified nutrition and wellness consultant. She's been on our podcast a few times before, and if you want to hear her full story, go back and check out Episode 7, where we go into depth about Brittany's injury, her parenting story, and all the things of her life. So welcome back, Brittany. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, we're really excited that we get to keep picking your brain on all things nutrition because there's so many questions that people have. And, you know, when we're at Ryu, we talk about nutrition a lot with people. And after you have a spinal cord injury or any kind of neurologic condition, nutrition does play a big part in your overall health. So today we're going to be talking about eating for weight management. This is something huge for a lot of wheelchair users because when you're sitting, you don't really notice if you're gaining a lot of weight. And so it's really important for us to talk about this. So really hard to weigh yourself too. So we can kind of kid ourselves that maybe I'm just bloated or whatever the case may be. So I thought maybe to start off, we would talk about just what happens to your metabolism and your body after a spinal cord injury because there's a little bit of a mystery around that. And I don't think a lot of people with spinal cord injuries actually know that their metabolism changes and why. And so I thought that's kind of how I would start if that's if you're good with that. Yeah, for sure. Let's dive right in. Okay, so when you have a spinal cord injury, there's a whole bunch of things that cause metabolic dysfunction. And it's not that you are definitely going to have metabolic dysfunction. It's just that there's a bunch of sort of things that happen that contribute to that developing. So these things are less activity, less muscle mass. Within like the first six months, your leg muscles lose at least like 50% of their actual muscle mass and they actually gain intermuscular fat. So your muscle mass goes down and you get fat in the muscles you do have left. You gain more body fat just in general, like I already said, in the intramuscular tissue, and then you gain more visceral fat, which is the fat in your abdomen around your organs. It's not like a definite, but this generally happens in most people with spinal cord injuries after they're hurt. And then we have lower anabolic steroid production, which just kind of is another ding in the coffin for us being able to build muscle and maintain our muscle mass. So those all together basically just mean that we have less metabolically active tissue. And when these things happen, the way our body uses energy changes naturally. And so we have to keep those things in mind when we are eating because we need less calories. We have less metabolically active tissue to burn energy and the way we store fat changes. So all of that combined contributes to an increased risk for people with spinal cord injuries to develop lipid disorders, which is like high triglycerides, high LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, and low HDL, which is the good cholesterol, insulin resistance, and impaired glucose tolerance. So that sounds like a lot of bad things. (laughs) So I don't want anybody listening to be like, I'm doomed to gain weight. All this means is that you have to keep these things in mind when you're eating, because food is our energy and the way we use energy has now changed. 
So that was like, I was like, don't scare people, but also just like that this is a reality. When you have a spinal cord injury, these things actually happen. Just wanted to start with that. Yeah, no, I think that's really important to start out by saying because there are bodies go through so many changes and nobody really talks about the nutrition side of things and nobody really tells you how your body's changing and what you can do to kind of change that around in accordance to what is happening to your body. Yeah, exactly. And that's all that's all I wanted to to get out there is that these changes happen and they're not a huge deal, but if you don't pay attention to them, they can become a very big deal. So for anybody that's not like sciencey or is like, I don't know what triglycerides are, I have no idea what LDL is and HDL is, in very simple terms, what all of that meant was that after a spinal cord injury, the way your body uses sugar and stores fat changes. And so when we're eating, we have to pay more attention to how we're eating our carbohydrates and how many fats we're getting. And also because we have more fat on our body, fat acts as a barrier to insulin function. And therefore, we have to be very careful with our glucose because insulin is a hormone that allows glucose into our cells. And so the more fat we have on our body, the less we use, the less efficiently we use insulin, basically. So we just have to keep that in mind. So we need to eat in a way that allows us to manage our glucose levels and our insulin response while keeping our calories relatively low and our nutrients high. So yeah, those are the, the basic gist of how to eat with spinal cord injury. And yeah, now we can talk about what does that even mean? How much to eat after a spinal cord injury? So this is like a, a big one. People are always wondering like, well, how many calories should I eat, right? Yeah. How can I keep my weight down with those calories? And the big thing to remember is just that your calorie needs have gone down, but your nutrient needs have stayed relatively stable. So we still need the same amount of magnesium and all of those things that are the nutrients in food, but we don't need as much energy from that food. So we kind of have to eat in a way that keeps those nutrients in mind so that we're eating more nutrient dense than we might have been able to before. So the answer to how many calories is not a very good one, because there's not very like many studies that actually have studied this at all. There's basically a handful of studies. And they basically all say the same thing that all of the current formulas that are out there for estimating calorie needs for a specific weight. So even if somebody with a spinal cord injury is the same weight as somebody that's able-bodied, in all of the studies, they have consistently overestimated the energy requirements of the spinal cord injured person. So even if you're the same weight, so this is something that seems very counterintuitive because the formulas are supposed to base how much energy you need on the weight that you have. But um, yeah, in all of the studies, they've overestimated the energy needs of the spinal cord injury person compared to the able body controls. So we know that already, that the formulas that are out there don't work for spinal cord injuries. So, you know, don't just go Googling the formulas online because they're not generally going to work for you unless you're a very active person and you are maybe an incomplete paralysis where you have a lot of muscle tone still in your legs. The other thing that they find is that with the indirect calorimetry, which is actually a test of metabolic, your metabolic output, they've found that quads on average, this is just an average, of course, because everybody's different, require 23 calories per kilogram per day. 
And paraplegics require 28 calories per kilogram per day. So this was based on a study in the 80s. And it's really the only one we have that has estimated the metabolic output for somebody with spinal cord injury. And it's just based on averages of the test group. So it's a good starting point, but it's, it's not awesome. And these averages, which they, what they found was that they are between 45 and 90% of the energy recommendations that they were calculating with the formulas that I talked about before. So depending on the person, some people's energy output was 45% of what was predicted in these formulas. And some people's was 90% of what was predicted. So there's a lot of variance, which is the other thing that's really hard with spinal cord injuries is that there's a, there's not really a good estimate. Every time they do studies, they find that there's such a huge variation, even with people that have the same spinal cord injury. So, um, they're not really sure why that is. And maybe it has a lot to do with some people experiencing um, UTIs and other people maybe having pressure sores. So then your energy requirements go up drastically when you have those conditions. And so it's really hard to get a large group of people with spinal cord injuries that don't have any sort of urinary tract infection or skin issues or anything like that. So those have been some of the difficulties in just doing a really well-developed study. Mm -hmm. Everything's so different too. Like, So how do you even study this, right? Because everybody, lots of people have different comorbidities. Yeah, exactly. Other underlying conditions that make an impact on how their body metabolizes food. Exactly. And they have found direct correlations with the higher somebody gets paralyzed and the more muscle innervation they lose, the less calories they burn. So that makes intuitive sense, but it's really hard to, like I said, to get a group of people, a large enough group of people together with spinal cord injuries with very similar injuries that all have the same muscle innervation. So there's just, there's a lot of variables to figure out when you're doing these studies. I'm glad that there are some studies, like there's at least a handful and this gives us some good information to go on. The other study that's really important for people with spinal cord injuries that they've done is figuring out what a healthy BMI for somebody with a spinal cord injury would be. So 25 is sort of the BMI that if you are at it, you're good in able-bodied people. And if you go over that, you start to develop health risks like cardiovascular disease and all of that stuff. And so somebody decided, well, I wonder if that's the same for spinal cord injuries. Is that BMI accurate for predicting health risks? And so they did a study and what they found is that people with spinal cord injuries develop health risks at a much lower BMI. And so they, they studied the percentage of fat mass and then compared that to markers of inflammation in the body. And people with spinal cord injuries develop health risks at a lower BMI. So at a BMI of 22 compared to a BMI of 25 for able-bodied people. So we start to get sicker faster, I guess. And we, we can't carry as much weight on our body before we develop some of those health risks. So that was another really important study. It makes sense, though, because we have a lot less mass in our lower bodies usually. And so it, it would make sense that our percentage, it's the percentage of fat mass that matters, I guess, not necessarily the whole body weight that would contribute to the BMI. So that's why they looked at the percentage of fat mass. But yeah, so that's a good important study. So just to summarize all of that, because that was a lot of information, the current formulas that are on all the websites that you just plug in your weight and height and stuff, those things consistently overestimate energy needs for people with spinal cord injuries, and they can est overestimate them drastically. And you can't really know for yourself how much it's going to overestimate because there's so much variance in how much muscle mass you still have and all that stuff. So 
probably don't use those. And if you do use them, at least reduce the calorie amount that it's showing you by at least 10%, at least, because those are the estimates of even the high level of somebody that would be burning energy at a, at a higher level, mm-hmm. you still have to reduce it by 10%. And then some people, you have to reduce it by like 50%. So I guess it would depend on your energy level and all that stuff, but don't just go on those formulas. So that's the first thing. The second thing, if you want like a, an estimate, it's the 23 calories per kilogram per day for a quad, 28 calories per kilogram per, per day for paraplegic as a starting point. So those are probably a better estimate than just the formulas that you would find online. And then a healthy BMI is 22. So that's sort of the, your goal is to stay at a BMI of 22 or under. Can I just interrupt and just point out that you said kilogram, not pounds? Yes, kilogram, not pounds. So if, like for myself, I am uh, roughly 100 pounds. So I would then take my kilograms, which I would be, you know, 50 some kilograms. So then I would times 50 some by 23. And that would be the amount of calories that I need. Yeah, I think there's just an important distinction to make that it's not, you're not talking about pounds, you're talking about kilograms. Yes, exactly. So you have to divide your your pounds by 2.2 in order to get your kilograms for anybody that doesn't know the conversion. Yes, so our calorie needs go down, but our nutrient needs stay the same. And so it's important to eat in a way that allows us to get high nutrients and low calories. And how do we do that? Well, I say plants most, fruits and vegetables most, and then you add in the other things that you need to get adequate amounts of. So there is a free program from the University of Alabama Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. And I will provide a link to you guys so that you can put it in the show notes. And it's completely free. And they've done a whole program on how to eat for weight management with a spinal cord injury. It's actually pretty amazing. There's lots of lots of these actual studies that have come out have come out of the University of Alabama um, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. So I don't know why they care so much about people's spinal cord injuries down there, but they do. And it's good for us. Um, But it was developed with a grant from the Paralyzed Veterans of America Education Foundation. And it talks specifically about the nutrition needs of people with spinal cord injuries. It's a little dated in some of the information, but it's still really good. So I just wanted to reference something that people could actually like go and look at. And it basically says all of the things that I would recommend and that I use in my own life to maintain my weight with a spinal cord injury. And the things that they look at specifically in this program is nutrient density and specifically caloric density versus time calorie displacement. And so what that means is like looking at how dense in calories is something and how long does it actually take you to eat something. So as an example, 100 calories of mayo is basically a tablespoon. How long does that take you to eat? You could down that in one bite and you would get 100 calories. It takes no time and it's very calorically dense. Then you can compare that to 100 calories of chicken breast which is also pretty calorically dense, but it's going to take you longer than to eat the mayo. You still have to chew the chicken. And then comparing that to 100 calories of a sweet potato or a regular potato, that again is going to take you longer to eat because it's just a a larger volume of food. And then comparing that to 100 calories of fruit, which would be like two apples, that's going to take you longer to eat than a potato. That's 100 calories. And then lastly, 100 calories of something like salad greens is going to take you way longer than any of the more calorically dense things. So we need to be eating more of the food that has a higher time calorie displacement and lower caloric density, and then getting adequate amounts of those calorically dense foods 
that we need in order to have, you know, fat soluble vitamins and the adequate amounts of proteins and things like that. So they made a really good distinction here of a simple way to think about this. So fruits and vegetables should have a minimum serving each day. So you need to get a minimum amount of those things that are high nutrient density foods that have all of the, you know, antioxidants and all those things that you need in order to stay healthy. And you can't really go over them. So you you don't have to worry about eating too many cucumbers or too much spinach or anything like that. So you basically don't have to even think about how much of that you're eating other than to get the minimum amount. And the minimum amount is not really well defined. The Canada Food Guide took out all of the amounts of food servings and just basically gave a guideline of what your plate should look like. But I'm going to say that the American Cancer Association recommends eight to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day if you want to prevent disease. And so that's what I recommend to people as well. So I would say a minimum of eight servings of fruits and vegetables if you want to maintain your health long term with a spinal cord injury. And then aim for 10. And that seems like a lot, but a serving isn't very big. So, you know, half a cup of cooked vegetables, half a cup of fruit, half a cup of frozen fruit, that stuff adds up pretty quickly. So it seems overwhelming when you think about getting 10 servings, but it's not really that much. And then for the proteins, you want to get an adequate or specific amount each day. And that this also includes starchy carbohydrates. So things like, you know, potatoes vegetables that are very starchy, those aren't considered fruits and vegetables in the eight to 10 servings a day. You would put those in the the middle servings category or spectrum where you get an adequate amount. So we need an adequate amount of starchy carbohydrates in order for our nervous system to work, in order for us to have energy, glycogen, all of that stuff. But we don't want to go over because then we start messing with our insulin response and we just get, get fat gain. So just going to go over this, like the, the minimum servings, the adequate servings, which is the protein and, and dairy and starchy carbohydrates. And then the last one is maximum serving. So the fats and the really high calorically dense things, you want to limit and only go to a maximum amount of servings per day. So fruits and vegetables, you want to get your minimums, proteins, dairy and starchy carbohydrates, you want to get adequate amounts of and fats and other high calorically dense or like things that are one specific nutrient, like super high sugar things, you you want to stay under a maximum serving amount per day. So that was a lot to say, eat more fruits and vegetables, eat adequate amounts of protein and eat less fat. <laughs> yeah, that was a very long winded way of saying that. But I'm glad you described it the way you did because it does make sense. I just wanted to make sure people really understood that, that the reasons why. Mm-hmm, for sure. So we've said nutrient a bunch of times. Can we define what nutrients are? Because I think at this point, people might be a little bit confused on what a nutrient is. Yes. Okay. So there's energy and food, which are like the calories, the things that our bodies actually use for creating energy. And then there's nutrients, things like vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, things that we don't get energy from, but that help our body work properly and that we need for, you know, building hormones, a whole bunch of other things in our body. They just basically involved in chemical reactions. But yeah, that's what nutrients are. They're they're the non-caloric or non-energy creating things that are in food, but that our body requires. Mm-hmm. One other way I've heard it explained is that we have micronutrients and macronutrients. Yes. 
in our body. So maybe let's just make that distinction for those people that might have understood that concept. I guess, yes. Okay, so energy things would be considered a nutrient, yes. But there's, yeah, the energy nutrients and then the micronutrients are the things that I was more referring to as nutrients that your body uses for other things other than energy. So macronutrients are things like carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Alcohol is actually a macronutrient as well because it has calories and energy, but we don't consider it. We don't just tell people, drink alcohol for energy, but it is considered a macronutrient in the, the biological sense. So fats, carbohydrates, and proteins are the macronutrients. And then micronutrients are the things like magnesium, selenium, vitamins, all of the things that our body uses in order to do the, the biochemistry of the body, basically. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you for that distinction. So for the purposes of our talk today, micronutrients is what you refer to as the nutrients. Yes, exactly. Oh, when I say more nutrients, I, I'm more referring to the nutrient density in terms of like the, the micronutrients. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to talk about the specific amounts of protein for people. And it's not really different for people with spinal cord injuries if you don't have a pressure sore. And protein recommendations are actually pretty low. You can eat higher amounts of proteins based on how much you exercise and how much lean muscle mass you have and stuff like that. But the basic recommendation for anybody, including people with spinal cord injury, is one gram of protein per kilogram, again, kilogram, not pound, of body weight per day. So that sounds low, especially to people in like the you know bodybuilding world or anybody that's like an athlete, they'd probably be eating more protein. But these are just general guidelines for, you know, an average everyday person, one gram of protein per, per kilogram of body weight per day. So I would need, you know, roughly 55 grams of protein for myself. And then if I wanted to eat more than that based on my activity level, or if I was trying to gain muscle mass, then I could. If you have a pressure sore, though, it definitely goes up because you are building tissue. So if you have a stage two pressure sore, you need 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of protein. And if you have a stage three or four pressure sore, you need even more, two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. And those are like the minimum amounts. So this is like what you would need to just stay relatively healthy. So if you have a pressure sore, make sure you're getting those amounts because you can't build tissue without that. That's really good information to know. Thank you. Because yeah, a lot of people will say, you know, when you do have a pressure sore, you know, doctors say, okay, increase your protein, increase how much you're taking. But nobody really ever tells you how much to increase it by. Like, how much should I be taking? How much is too much? And I guess that's another question. Is there too much? So for people with spinal cord injuries, there's a lot of like, worry about the kidneys because you process nitrogen through your kidneys. So protein has nitrogen in it. And it's the only macronutrient that has nitrogen in it. And you get rid of excess nitrogen through your kidneys. And so a lot of people are worried that if you eat excess amounts of protein, that your kidneys are going to suffer. And because people with spinal cord injuries already have UTIs and may suffer or may have risk factors for suffering from kidney problems, that high protein might be bad. I haven't really seen any evidence in any of the studies that I've found that says that protein is harmful for anybody that already has healthy kidneys. So if you say have diabetes or you already have kidney disease or things like that, then yes, there is evidence that it can definitely make those conditions worse. I've read lots of studies 
specifically because I've seen talk out there that like keto isn't is bad for people with spinal cord injuries because it's higher in protein and all those things. And I haven't really found much in the way of actual scientific proof that eating high protein is damaging to people with healthy kidneys. So if you are somebody with a spinal cord injury and you already know based on like tests that you've had that your kidneys are at risk, then don't eat more than the recommended amount of protein. But I would say that if you don't have kidney problems, then you can eat probably the amount of of protein that feels satiating to you and that allows you to maintain your weight goals. I think it's more important for a whole bunch of health markers to stay under a healthy weight than it is to worry about your kidneys if they're healthy. So I'm not a doctor, but I have read lots of lots and lots of studies just because I am a health coach and I can't find anything that says a high protein is, is super bad. And then does the type of protein matter? I'm going to say yes for a few different reasons, but I'm not going to say yes, specifically like recommend a certain type of protein for people. What I'm going to say is that it matters for your body because there are some people and just in general, we know that like things like whey protein they build tissue better. There's no discrepancy in that. Like you can't take a pea protein supplement and it's going to build muscle tissue the same as a whey protein supplement. It just doesn't happen. But there are people that don't tolerate dairy products well for digestive reasons. And so then that causes inflammation and that's not good to have in your body either. So it's a very individual thing. I prefer to eat vegan proteins and protein shakes and things like that. And eat meat for other types of proteins that assimilate better in my body. But I don't like downing, you know, like whey protein. I just don't digest it well when it's highly concentrated like that. So it's very individual, but in general, meat and like whey protein, things like that, they do build tissue better than vegetable proteins, but it's an individual thing and digestion matters a lot. So some people might not be able to digest pea protein. Sometimes it's very bloating. I prefer to get fermented vegan proteins just because then some of those bloating issues are already taken care of by the fermentation process. But yeah, everybody has to sort of experiment with the proteins that they digest well, because at the end of the day, whatever you digest the best is going to assimilate the best in your body. Thank you for that. So when you say experiment, a lot of people try it for a day or two. What would you consider a good like experimentation timeline? I would say that in general, and especially for people with spinal cord injuries, because our digestive systems are slower, I would say that you need at least two weeks to know whether something is really helping or hurting. And generally with any weight management program, you need at least four weeks before you can say it's not working or it is working. So digestion wise, I think most people need at least a week or two to definitively say like, this is the thing that's causing me bloating or causing me pain or making me constipated or whatever. And four weeks for any weight loss or weight management program to show adequate results. So a lot of people give up before they even know whether something's working. So that kind of brings us into the segue about fad diets and just creating that short-term change versus a long-term lifestyle change. So with fad diets, the big point I want to make here is that 
almost every fad diet is based in science in some degree, but it's based in science that is done with able-bodied people. So again, not very applicable to people with spinal cord injuries, but that doesn't mean that a a fad diet isn't going to work for you. And there are diets of every kind that work for people all the time. So at the end of the day, you have to try something. You have to first ask probably your doctor if, you know, is this healthy for me? Because again, you know, you don't want to be going, oh, keto gung-ho if you have like kidney issues. And some people have gallbladder issues. So then they don't tolerate a whole bunch of fat and gallbladder issues can be a problem for people with spinal cord injuries just because the gallbladder is innervated in the lower T-spine. And so sometimes we don't digest fat as well. So there's some diets out there that just aren't going to work as well for us. Some people, they do work well for. So I would say if you think that a fad diet could be a tool in your toolbox to maintain weight, and it's going to allow you to do it easier, because some people just prefer eating fat, you know, like they like keto because they like the taste of fat, and that keeps them eating less food in general. Some people like carbohydrates. So going high carbohydrate, low fat is the thing that's going to keep them under their calories. So at the end of the day, whatever is going to allow you to stay full longer, be satisfied longer and reduce your overall calorie intake for the long term is the thing that's going to be best. So fad diets have a place, but just keep in mind that they are almost always based on science for able-bodied people. And then would you say that these kind of fad diets are okay to be on long term or should you cycle through? There's no saying that like fad diets, like the the zone diet or whatever, because it's basically just telling you a macronutrient range. Most of them are okay to be on long term. I'm not a huge fan of keto long term, just because I don't think it's sustainable just in terms of like eating everywhere. And I do think that like for especially women for hormone balance and things like that, keto can sometimes mess things up. But most diets other than like the you know, keto, which is usually just a therapeutic diet, I would say if it's keeping you under your amount of calories and it keeps you healthy and satiated, then it's probably okay long-term. That's the one thing that we like, I think people miss a lot is they get a set of rules in their, in their head. And that's what fad diets generally do is they give you a set of rules that you have to follow. And that's not in my mind. I've been there, done that many times. I've had lots of food rules and instead of listening to my body, I just stuck to food rules, even though it was not working. So long term, I think what is most beneficial for people is to listen to their own body. And it's a lot more work up front to do this. It's kind of annoying because people just wanted people to tell them what to eat. Just tell me what to eat. But that's not really realistic. So it's, it's more front load work to actually listen to your body and figure out what works for your body, your metabolism, your digestion, your mood, all of those things. But in the long term, you're going to be a lot better set up to be able to make adjustments because as we age, our body chemistry changes. I've had to readjust my bowel program numerous times. I've had to readjust how much fiber I'm able to eat numerous times. I've had to readjust the amount of carbohydrates that my body tolerates numerous times based on my activity levels, my hormones, my stress levels, all of these things go into into play with your your metabolism and stuff. So long-term doing whatever is best for your, your weight management is probably best. And if a fad diet helps you do that, then I think probably it's okay long-term. 
Okay, cool. So let's talk about food restrictions versus restraints. Because when people hear the word diet, one of the first things they think of is, oh, I can't eat sugar. I can't eat refined flour. I can't eat that. I can't eat that. And so what happens to your mindset when you start with I can't? So that is a big one. Mindset is a huge thing. And when when you tell your brain you can't have something ever, then it is more likely to push back and be like, oh my God, that's all I can think about. And then when you do eat it, because it's like, well, I'm only going to get this this one time, then you tend to overeat. So restrictions tend to create disordered eating and actually eating more calories in the end than if you just have restraint around food. And so the difference between restriction and restraint is, you know, restriction says I can never have chocolate ever again because it's unhealthy. Whereas restraint says I am going to only have chocolate on Fridays and I'm going to buy one chocolate bar from the store and that's all. And so you eat your chocolate bar, which is sometimes less than 200 calories in your entire week. And you've been satisfied and you don't tell yourself you can't have it. Restraint just means setting some healthy boundaries around the foods that are not as purposeful for your body or that don't serve serve you as well. And then trying to eat them in a way that allows you to stick to those boundaries. So yeah, I would say I've been around, I've had lots of food restrictions and it wasn't healthy. Um, I didn't share food with my family. I brought food to people's houses. I didn't eat anything in a social setting often, and it was not healthy for me in terms of just my own emotional well-being, and it wasn't even healthy for me in terms of like my physiology, because I was stressing more about eating than I should have been, and stress is a major factor in weight gain and all kinds of nasty physiological things, so Don't stress too much about it. Just try and set some healthy boundaries and then find ways to help yourself stick to those boundaries. Yeah. And I really like that you said that you experienced both extremes and stuff and that you've gone through a lot of this stuff yourself, which I feel like gives you a lot of credibility in providing this kind of advice to other people, especially people with spinal cord injuries, because you are one as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've, I've run the whole gamut of, you know, being terrified that you know, I'm going to get cancer and thinking that if I eat any bit of sugar, it's going to cause me to, you know, get fat and all that stuff. And then the more you learn about nutrition and how the body actually uses food, the more freeing it is because you realize, oh, like carbohydrates aren't the enemy. They're actually something your body needs in order to burn fat. So some people go really low carb, but there's a saying that fat burns in a carbohydrate flame. So you can't really burn fat unless you eat an adequate amount of carbohydrates. And the thing that I always tell people, especially with carbohydrates, is if you're eating high fiber carbohydrates, you're generally going to be burning them slowly and they're going to be healthy carbohydrates. If you look at like, you know, refined carbohydrates, they're almost devoid of fiber. So just look at the fiber count. And if there's, if it's high fiber and high carbohydrate, you're okay. So you're eating beans, you're eating lentils, you're eating, you know, whole grain breads, you're eating things like that. Just watch how much carbohydrates you're eating. But if they're high fiber, then you're almost always going to be okay. Yeah, that's a really good point to point out. And like for us, because we work on neuro recovery, right? And so your brain is heavily involved in our program and your brain runs on carbs. It does run on carbs, yeah. 
It's like, and there's a reason why our body is made up the way it is. And I agree, the more you understand about how your body works, the better understanding you'll have of how to feed it. And like, that's why, you know, I'm not a fan of the keto diet either, simply because you're not eating carbs, which your body does need. Yeah. Yeah, you really do. And your body actually has to go through like the biochemistry pathway that has to go to in order to get used to burning ketones, especially for like your nervous system, because yeah, your nervous system prefers glucose. It's not unhealthy, like per se, it's just not preferred for your, especially for your nervous system. So you'll know right away when you start to crave, like if you're tired, you'll crave carbohydrates and things like that. And that's your brain going, I'm tired. And I still need to be stimulated. I need carbohydrates. So yeah, your your brain definitely, definitely prefers carbohydrates. One thing that I wanted to say is like, what's a good number for carbohydrates? And so in lots of the books that I've read, just in order for your brain and your central nervous system to function really well, a good number is around 600 calories of carbohydrates a day, which equals around 150 grams of carbohydrates. So I wouldn't go over that if you have a spinal cord injury, but I wouldn't go too much under either. So 600 calories is is just a good average number to not go over. And then yeah, I definitely wouldn't go under like 50 grams of carbohydrates, I mean, not calories, because then you're starting to get into that keto zone. Okay, so let's talk about blood sugar levels and how that affects you after spinal cord injury. Yeah, so I already talked about how the way we use glucose just becomes less efficient because we have more fat fat mass. And the more fat mass we have, it just acts as a barrier to insulin. And insulin is the thing that allows us to process glucose efficiently. And so we just have to eat in a way that allows our blood sugar to stay more stable. So when we are eating carbohydrates, we want to, again, like I already said, make sure that they are higher fiber because that allows them to digest a little bit slower and allows the glucose to enter our bloodstream at a slower rate, which allows our insulin then not to spike. And it just improves our insulin sensitivity and our glucose tolerance. So eating carbohydrates that are high in fiber, eating carbohydrates with fats, because that also slows down how fast they get digested, eating things that are low glycemic, which is the thing that you'll see on like a whole bunch of diabetic stuff. People with diabetes have to eat low glycemic. And that's not like you don't have to always eat low glycemic food, but just eating more low glycemic carbohydrates will help us to stabilize our blood sugar throughout the day. Eating balanced meals and eating regularly. So, you know, eating at 8 a.m. and then again at noon and then again at 4 p.m. is going to help our blood sugar kind of regulate and predict when it's going to get food and allow our insulin response to be more predictable. And so it's not really complicated. It's just making sure that when you are eating foods that have carbohydrates and sugar in them, you're making sure that you're also eating fiber and fat to slow down the digestion and the the spike in blood sugar so that we can maintain our insulin sensitivity. Awesome. Yeah, you've provided so much information on this episode. This is honestly really, really good. What are some takeaways that you would say to people regarding weight management? Okay, so takeaway is lower calories. So you don't need as much energy, but you do need as much nutrients. So thinking about the foods that are most nutrient dense in terms of like the vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and things like that are probably your your most important thing to think about. So if you didn't like vegetables before, 
and you want to maintain a healthy weight with a spinal cord injury, you better start liking vegetables. So I think that's my biggest takeaway is that plants most adequate protein and starchy carbohydrates and fill in the rest with fat. So fat's there to make your food taste good. It's there to provide fat for fat soluble vitamins, things like that. But it's calorically dense and it's something that we just don't have the luxury of eating a ton of. So plants most, adequate protein, and then fill in the rest with fat. I just wanted to like simply describe what people should eat. Yeah, that's awesome. We love that. And you know, if you're listening and you do want a more individualized program and you have specific questions for yourself, you can reach out to Brittany. Brittany, where can they find you? They can find me at empoweredpara.com. All of my social media is Empowered Para. So on Instagram, it's Empowered Para. And Facebook, it's Empowered Para. Or they can email me at empoweredpara at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you. We'll put your contact information in the show notes as well, as well as the link from the University of Alabama that you were talking about. Yeah. And it's a totally free program and it's got workbooks. It's got specific amounts of calories. It's got, it's super, super simple. I'm not sure why not many places know about it because it took, it took me a while to dig to find it like a couple of months ago. And it's actually like a really good program. So if money's tight and you can't afford individual coaching or even you can't go to the, you know, afford a gym membership or anything like that, this program is totally free. So I'll, I'll make sure to give you the link. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all of your wealth of information. We will be having you back for a couple more episodes talking about healthy bladder and healthy bowel, because those are huge topics in the spinal cord injury world. So stay tuned for those episodes. And thank you again, Brittany. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.